0: chapter two part one of the history of the catholic church from the renaissance to the french revolution volume two by reverend james mccaffrey this librivox recording is in the public domain the religious changes under henry the eighth and edward the sixth the accession of henry the eighth fifteen oh nine to forty seven was hailed with joy by all classes in england young handsome well developed both in mind and body fond of outdoor games and amusements affable and generous with whomsoever he came into contact he was to all appearances qualified perfectly for the high office to which he had succeeded with the exception of Empson and dudley who were sacrificed for their share in the execution of his father most of the old advisers were retained at the royal court but the chief confidants on whose advice he relied principally were his chancellor warham archbishop of canterbury and lord chancellor of england richard fox bishop of winchester and lord privy seal and thomas howard afterwards duke of norfolk lord treasurer of the kingdom soon however these trusted and loyal advisers were obliged to make way for a young and rising ecclesiastical courtier thomas wolsey who for close on twenty years retained the first place in the affections of his sovereign and the chief voice in the direction of english affairs as a youth, Wolsey's marvellous abilities astonished his teachers at Magdalen College, where the boy bachelor, as he was called because he obtained the b.a. degree at the age of fifteen, was regarded as a prodigy. As a young man, he was pushed forward by his patrons, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Winchester, and won favour at court by the successful accomplishment of a delicate mission entrusted him by Henry the Seventh till at last, in 1511, he was honoured by a seat in the Privy Council. New dignities were heaped upon him, by Pope and Sovereign in turn. He was appointed Bishop of Lincoln and Archbishop of York, 1514, was created a Cardinal of the Roman Church, 1515, and in a short time he accepted the offices of Lord Chancellor and Papal Legate for England. If he did not succeed in reaching the Papal Throne, a dignity to which he was induced to aspire by the promise of Charles V, his position as legate made him at least virtual head of the english church instead of being annoyed henry the eighth was delighted at the honours showered upon his lord chancellor by the roman court with wolsey as his obedient minister and at the same time an ecclesiastical dictator he felt that he had more authority in ecclesiastical affairs than was granted to francis I by the concordat of fifteen sixteen and though possibly at the time he did not advert to it He was thus preparing the way for exercising in his own name the control that he had exercised for years through his chief minister in the name of the pope the dream of reconquering the english possessions in france induced henry the eighth during the early years of his reign to side with the emperor maximilian and ferdinand of spain against louis the twelfth but the comparative failure of the expeditions undertaken against france the resentment of the people who were burdened with taxation and the advice of Cardinal Wolsey led him to forego his schemes of conquest for a time in favor of a policy of neutrality. The election of Charles V in 1519 changed the whole aspect of affairs on the continent and raised new hopes both in the minds of Henry VIII and of his faithful minister. An alliance with Charles V might mean for England the complete subjugation of France, and for Cardinal Wolsey the votes of the cardinals at the approaching conclave while pretending to act the part of mediator between the rival sovereigns henry concluded a secret alliance with the emperor in fifteen twenty one and prepared to make war on france the failure of the forces dispatched under the earl of surrey the disappointment of wolsey when he found himself deceived by charles v at the conclaves of fifteen twenty one and fifteen twenty three and the outcry raised in parliament and throughout the world against the french war induced henry the eighth to reconsider his foreign policy The defeat and capture of Francis I at Pavia, 1525, placed France at the mercy of the Emperor, and made it necessary for Henry to come to the relief of his old enemy, unless he wished to see England sink to the level of an imperial province. Overtures for peace were made to France, and in April 1527, Grémont, Bishop of Tarbes, arrived in England to discuss the terms of an alliance the position of cardinal wolsey which had been rendered critical by the hatred of the nobles who resented his rule as the rule of an upstart and by the enmity of the people who regarded him as the author of the french war and of the increased taxation was now threatened seriously by the public discussion of difficulties that had arisen in the mind of the king regarding the validity of his marriage the lutheran movement that broke out in germany two years after cardinal wolsey's acceptance of the twofold office a papal legate and royal chancellor found little favour in england here and there at oxford at cambridge and in london individuals were found to subscribe to a portion of luther's programme but the great body of the people remained unmoved by the tirades of the german reformers against rome henry the whose attention to religion was noted as one of his characteristics by the observant ambassador of Venice, did not hesitate to take the field against the enemies of the Holy See, and more especially against Luther himself. In a work entitled *Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, Defense of the Seven Sacraments, published against Luther in 1521, he defended in no uncertain terms the rights and privileges of the Holy See, and in return for the very valuable services that he rendered to religion, he was honored by Leo X with the title, defensor defender of the faith fifteen twenty one the example of the king and the activity of cardinal wolsey and of the bishops made it impossible for the few individuals who favoured the german movement to spread their views were it not for henry's eagerness to secure a separation from his wife catherine of aragon it is highly improbable that the anti-roman agitation would have made any considerable progress in england in 1499 Henry's wife, Catherine of Aragon, had been betrothed by proxy to his brother, Prince Arthur, heir apparent to the English throne. She arrived in England two years later, and the marriage was solemnized at St. Paul's on the 14th November, 1501. Prince Arthur was then only a boy of fifteen years of age, and of so delicate a constitution that fears were entertained by many that his wife must soon don the widow's weeds. Unfortunately, these fears were speedily justified. In April 1502, the prince fell victim to a pestilence that raged in the district round Ludlow Castle, to which he and his wife had retired. To prevent quarrels between Ferdinand and Henry the Seventh regarding Catherine's dowry, a marriage was arranged between Catherine and Prince Henry. The necessary dispensation for a marriage with the deceased brother's wife was granted by Julius II, December 1503 and according to the agreement between the courts of England and of Spain, the marriage should have taken place as soon as Henry reached the age of puberty. But owing to certain political changes in Spain, and the prospect of securing a better match for the heir presumptive to the English throne, Henry the Seventh arranged that Prince Henry should appear before Fox, Bishop of Winchester, and lodge a formal protest against the marriage agreement that had been concluded during his minority, and which he now declared to be null and void seventeenth june fifteen o five this protest was kept secret but for years catherine was treated with neglect and left in doubt regarding her ultimate fate as soon however as henry was free to act for himself on the death of his father the marriage between himself and catherine was solemnized publicly fifteen o nine and on the twenty fourth june of the same year the king and queen were crowned at westminster abbey for years henry and catherine lived happily together as man and wife several children were born to them all of whom unfortunately died in their infancy except the princess mary afterwards queen mary of england even before there was any question of separation from his wife henry's relations with some of the ladies at court were not above suspicion by one elizabeth blount he had a son whom he created duke of richmond and to whom at one time he thought of bequeathing the crown of england In a short time Mary, the eldest sister of Anne Boleyn, succeeded to Elizabeth in the affections of the king. The fact that Catherine was some years older than her husband, that infirmity and sorrow for the death of her children had dimmed her charms, and that there could be no longer any hope for the birth of an heir to the throne, preyed on Henry's mind, and made him not unwilling to rid himself of a wife whom, however, he could not but admire, even though she had forfeited his love. Were he to die, there was no one to succeed him but the Princess Mary, and her right to the throne might be contested. Even though she succeeded, her marriage must inevitably create great difficulties. Were she to marry a foreign prince, he feared that England might become a province. Were she to accept the hand of an English nobleman, a disputed succession, ending in civil war, was far from being improbable. His gloomy anticipations were shared in so many of his advisers, and Wolsey, who had set his heart on uniting the forces of england and france against the emperor was not unwilling to set a seal on the new french anti-imperial alliance by repudiating henry's marriage with the emperor's aunt if such a dissolution could be brought about without infringing the laws of god though it would seem that doubts had long since arisen in henry's mind regarding the lawfulness of his marriage to his deceased brother's wife and that questions of policy may have influenced the attitude of his advisers towards the projected separation yet it is certain that it was the charms of the young and accomplished anne boleyn that brought matters to a crisis with her experience of the gay and corrupt court of france she was not likely to be mistaken about the influence of her charms or the violence of the king's passion she would be the king's wife if he wished but she would not be like her sister the king's mistress Overcome by the force of his desires, he determined to rid himself of a wife of whom he was tired, in favor of her young and more attractive rival. The fact that Catherine had been married to his brother Arthur was seized upon by him to furnish a decent pretext for the projected separation. His conscience, he averred, reproached him for such an incestuous alliance, and for his own peace of mind it was necessary, he maintained, to submit the validity of his marriage to the decision of the church." There is no convincing evidence that the idea of a separation from catherine originated with cardinal wolsey though the latter longing for a matrimonial alliance of his king with the french princess and not aware of henry's intention with regard to anne was probably not sorry when he learned of henry's scruples and it is not true to say that the first doubts regarding the illegitimacy of the princess mary were raised by the french ambassador in 1527 The whole story of the negotiations with France regarding Mary's marriage, at the time, makes it perfectly clear that the legitimacy was assumed. The divorce proceedings originated in Henry's own mind, and the plan of marrying Anne Boleyn was kept a secret from Wolsey, and from most of the royal advisers. When exactly the question of a separation from Catherine was first mooted is uncertain, but there can be no doubt that early in 1527 active steps were taken to secure a condemnation of the marriage. Wolsey entered warmly into the project, but most of the bishops whom he consulted were not anxious to assist him, and what was still more serious, Fisher, the learned and saintly Bishop of Rochester, declared himself from the beginning a determined opponent. The capture of Rome by imperial troops, 1527, made it imperative that the terms of the French alliance should be completed at once, and Cardinal Wolsey set out for Paris as the representative of England. While Wolsey was absent in France, arranging the terms of the alliance, Anne Boleyn took occasion to warn Henry that his great minister was unreliable, that in his heart he was opposed to the separation, and that without his knowledge or consent negotiations should be opened directly with the Roman court. An agent was dispatched to Rome, and succeeded in securing an interview with Clement VII, after the latter had made his escape from Rome to Orvieto, December 1527 it was contended on behalf of the king that the dispensation granted by julius the second was null and void in proof of this it was contended that in the bull it had been stated that henry desired to marry catherine and that the marriage was necessary for preserving peace between england and spain both of which statements it was alleged were false that at the time the disposition was granted henry was only twelve years of age and therefore incapable of accepting it that several persons mentioned in the bull, as for example queen isabella and henry the seventh had died before the marriage took place and lastly that when henry reached the age of puberty he had protested against the marriage thereby renouncing for himself the favours granted in the bull of dispensations later on it was contended by those who favoured the separation that the dispensation was issued by the pope on the supposition that the marriage between arthur and catherine had not been consummated and that therefore, since this condition was not verified, the dispensation was invalid. But here they were faced with the difficulty that the great weight of evidence favoured the view that the marriage had not been consummated, that in any case the dispensation was ample enough to cover both the impediment of affinity and public honesty, and that, whatever might be said against the bold dispensation, no such objection could be urged against the brief said to have been forwarded by the Pope to the court of Spain." As the English agents had been instructed to seek not merely the appointment of a commission to declare the invalidity of the dispensation and consequently the marriage, but also for a dispensation which would permit the king to marry a woman related to him in the first degree of affinity, whether the affinity had been contracted by a lawful or unlawful connection, it was thought prudent not to lay stress on the argument that marriage with the deceased brother's wife was prohibited by the divine law and that therefore the Pope could not grant a dispensation such as had been issued by Julius II. At a later date great stress was laid upon this argument. Clement VII, while not unwilling to grant the dispensation requested, did not think it consistent with his own honor or that of the King to grant the commission according to the terms drawn up for him in England. A new embassy consisting of Edward Fox and Dr. Stephen Gardiner, Wolsey's secretary, was dispatched, and arrived at orvieto in march fifteen twenty eight victorious progress of the french armies in italy fifteen twenty seven to twenty eight by relieving clement the seventh from the pressure of the imperial party favoured the petition of henry the eighth arguments drawn from canon law and from theology were driven home by gardiner with a fluency and wealth of knowledge that astonished the papal advisers and when arguments failed recourse was had to threats of an appeal to a general council and of the complete separation of england from the holy see the decretal commission demanded by the english ambassadors was however refused but in its place a decree was issued empowering cardinal wolsey and cardinal campeggio to try the case in england and to pronounce a verdict in accordance with the evidence submitted to them as this fell very far short of what had been demanded by the english envoys new demands were made for more ample authority for the commission and in view of the danger that threatened the catholic church in england clement the seventh yielded so far as to promise that he would not revoke the jurisdiction of those whom he had entrusted with the trial of the case july fifteen twenty eight meanwhile news of what was in contemplation was noised abroad many of the english merchants fearing that hostility to the empire would lead to an interruption of their trade especially with the netherlands detested the new foreign policy of the king while the great body of the people were so strongly on the side of catherine that were a verdict to be given against her a popular rebellion seemed inevitable so pronounced was this feeling even in the city of london itself that henry felt it necessary to summon the lord mayor and the corporation to the royal palace where he addressed them on the question that was then uppermost in men's minds he spoke of catherine in terms of the highest praise assured them that the separation proceedings were begun not because he was anxious to rid himself of a wife whom he still loved but because his conscience was troubled with scruples regarding the validity of his marriage and that the safety of the kingdom was endangered by doubts which had been raised by the french ambassador regarding the legitimacy of princess mary to put an end to these doubts and to save the country from the horror of a disputed secession the Pope had appointed a commission to examine the validity of the marriage, and to the judgment of that commission, whatever it might be, he was prepared to yield a ready submission. He warned his hearers, however, that if any person failed to speak of him otherwise than became a loyal subject towards his sovereign condyne, punishment would await him. To give effect to these words a search was made for arms in the city, and strangers were commanded to depart from London. Though the commission had been granted in April, Cardinal Campeggio was in no hurry to undertake the work that was assigned to him. He did not leave Rome till June, and he proceeded so leisurely on his journey through France that it was only in the first week of October that he arrived in London. In accordance with his instructions, he endeavoured to dissuade the king from proceeding further with the separation, but as Henry was determined to marry the lady of his choice, even though it should prove the ruin of his kingdom all the efforts of Campeggio in this direction were in vain. He next turned his attention to Catherine, in the hope of persuading her to enter a convent, only to discover that her refusal to take any step likely to cast doubts upon her own marriage and the legitimacy of her daughter was fixed and unalterable. At the Queen's demand, counsel was assigned to her to plead her cause. The situation was complicated by the fact that Julius II appeared to have issued two dispensations for Henry's marriage, one contained in the bull sent to England, the other in a brief forwarded to Ferdinand in Spain. The Queen produced a copy of the brief, which was drawn up in such a way as to elude most of the objections that were urged against the bull on the grounds that the marriage had been consummated. The original of the brief was in the hands of the Emperor, and various attempts were made to secure the original or to have it pronounced a forgery by the Pope. But the Emperor was too wily a diplomatist to be caught so easily, and the Pope refused either to order its production or to condemn it without evidence as a forgery. This question of the brief was seized upon by Cardinal Campeggio as a good opportunity for delaying the trial. At last, on the 31st of May, 1529, the legates gates Wolsey and Campeggio opened the court at Blackfriars, and summoned Henry and Catherine to appear before them in person or by proxy on the 18th June. Both king and queen answered the summons, the latter, however, merely to demand justice publicly from the king, to protest against the competence and impartiality of the tribunal, and to lodge a formal appeal to Rome. Her appeal was disallowed, and on her refusal to take any further part in the trial she was condemned as Camtasius, but even still she was not without brave and able defenders. Bishop Fisher of Rochester spoke out manfully against the unnatural and unlawful proceedings, and his protest found an echo not merely in the court itself, but throughout the country. The friends of Henry, fearing that the Pope might revoke the power of the legates, clamoured for an immediate verdict. But this, Campeggio, was determined to prevent at all costs." By insisting upon all the formalities of law, he took care to delay the proceedings till the twenty third July, when he announced that the legatine court should follow the rules of the Roman court and should therefore adjourn to October. Already he was aware of the fact that Clement the seventh, yielding to the entreaties of catherine and the demands of the emperor, had reserved the decision of the case to Rome, nineteenth July, and that the summons to the king and queen to proceed there to plead their cause was already on its way to England. Henry, disguising his real feelings, pretended to be satisfied, but in reality his disappointment was extreme. Anne Boleyn and her friends threw the blame entirely on Wolsey. They suggested that the cardinal had acted a double part throughout the entire proceedings. For a time there was a conflict in the king's mind between the suggestions of his friends and the memory of Wolsey's years of loyal service, but at last henry was won over to the party of anne and wolsey was doomed to destruction he was deprived of the office of lord chancellor which was entrusted to sir thomas More, october fifteen twenty nine accused of violating the statute of primunire by exercising late-time powers a charge to which he pleaded guilty though he might have alleged in his defence the permission and authority of the king indicted before parliament as guilty of high treason from the penalty of which he was saved by the spirited defence of his able follower, Thomas Cromwell, December, in order to withdraw to his Diocese of York, 1530. His conduct in these trying times soon won the admiration of both friends and foes. The deep piety and religion of the man, however much they might have been concealed by his fondness for pomp and display during the days of his glory, helped him to withstand manfully the onslaughts of his opponents his time was spent in prayer and in the faithful discharge of his episcopal duties but the enemies who had secured his downfall at court were not satisfied they knew that he had still a strong hold on the affections of the king and they feared that were any foreign complications to ensue he might be recalled to court and restored to his former dignities they determined therefore to bring about his death an order for his arrest and committal to the tower was issued but death intervened and saved him from the fate that was in store for him. Before reaching London, he took suddenly ill and died, after having received the last consolations of religion, November 1530. Henry, having failed to obtain a favorable verdict from the Legatine Commission, determined to frighten the Pope into compliance with his wishes, by showing him that behind the King of England stood the English Parliament the most elaborate precautions were taken to secure that members likely to be friendly were elected in many cases together with the writs the names of those whose return the court desired were forwarded to the sheriffs the parliament that was destined to play such a momentous part in english affairs met in fifteen twenty nine it was opened by the king in person attended by sir thomas More as lord chancellor at a hint from the proper quarter it directed its attention immediately to the alleged abuses of the clergy the principal complaints put forward were the excessive fees and delays in connection with the probate of wills plurality of benefices and the agricultural and commercial activity of priests bishops and religious houses an activity that was detrimental to themselves and unfair to their lay competitors measures were taken in the house of commons to put an end to these exactions and abuses but when the bills reached the House of Lords, Bishop Fisher lodged an emphatic protest, for which he was called to account by the King. When Parliament had done enough to show the bishops and the Roman court what might be expected, in case Henry's wishes were not complied with, it was prorogued, December 1529, and in the following month a solemn embassy, headed by the Earl of Wiltshire, Anne Boleyn's father, was dispatched to interview the Pope and Charles V at Bologna. The envoys were instructed to endeavour to win over the emperor to the king's plans, but Charles V regarded their advances with indignation, and refused to sacrifice the honour of his aunt to the friendship of England. The only result of the embassy was that a formal citation of Henry to appear at Rome was served on the Earl of Wiltshire, but at the request of the latter a delay of some weeks was granted. Unless some serious measures were taken immediately, henry had every reason to expect that judgment might be given against him at rome and that he would find himself obliged either to submit unconditionally or to defend himself against the combined forces of the emperor and the king of france to prevent or at least to delay such a result and to strengthen the hands of the english agents at rome he determined to follow the advice that had been given him by thomas cranmer namely to obtain for the separation from catherine the approval of the universities and learned canonists of the world agents were dispatched to cambridge and oxford to obtain a verdict in favour of the king finding it impossible to secure a favourable verdict from the universities the agents succeeded in having the case submitted to a small committee both in cambridge and oxford and the judgment of the committees though by no means unanimous was registered as the judgment of the universities francis i of france who for political reasons was on Henry's side throughout the whole proceedings, brought pressure to bear upon the French universities, many of which declared that Henry's marriage to Catherine was not and void. In Italy the number of opinions obtained in favour of the king's desires depended entirely upon the amount of money at the disposal of his agents. To support the verdict of the learned world, Henry determined to show Rome that the nobility and clergy of his kingdom were in complete sympathy with his action a petition signed by a large number of laymen and a few of the bishops and abbots was forwarded to clement the seventh thirteenth july fifteen thirty it declared that the question of separation involving as it did the freedom of the king to marry was of supreme importance for the welfare of the english nation that the learned world had pronounced already in the king's favour and that if the pope did not comply with this request england might be driven to adopt other means of securing redress even though it should be necessary to summon a general council, to this clement the seventh sent a dignified reply september in which he pointed out that throughout the whole proceedings he had shown the greatest regard for henry and that any delay that had occurred at arriving at a verdict was due to the fact that the king had appointed no legal representatives at the roman courts the french ambassador also took energetic measures to support the english agents threatening that his master might be forced to join hands with henry if necessary but even this threat was without result and the king's agents were obliged to report that his case at rome was practically hopeless and that at any moment the pope might insist in proceeding with the trial when henry realized that marriage with anne boleyn meant defiance of rome he was inclined to hesitate both from the point of view of religion and of public policy separation from the holy see was decidedly objectionable while he was in this frame of mind a prey to passion and anxiety it was suggested to him probably by thomas cromwell the former disciple of the fallen cardinal that he should seize this opportunity to strengthen the royal power in england by challenging the authority of the pope and by taking into his own hands the control of the wealth and patronage of the church the prospect thus held out to him was so enticing that henry determined to follow the advice not indeed as yet with the intention of involving his kingdom in open schism but in the hope that the pope might be forced to yield to his demands in december fifteen thirty he addressed a strong letter to clement the seventh he demanded once more that the validity of his marriage should be submitted to an english tribunal and warned the pope to abstain from interfering with the rights of the king if he wished that the prerogatives of the holy see should be respected in england this letter of henry the eighth was clearly an ultimatum non-compliance with which meant open war at the beginning of fifteen thirty one steps were taken to prepare the way for royal supremacy for exercising legatine powers in england cardinal wolsey had been indicted and found guilty of the violation of the stature of praemunier and as the clergy had submitted to his legatine authority they were charged as a body with being participators in his guilt. The attorney-general filed an information against them to the court of the king's bench, but when convocation met it was intimated to the clergy that they might procure pardon for the offence by granting a large contribution to the royal treasury, and by due submission to the king. The convocation of Canterbury offered a sum of one hundred thousand pounds, but the offer was refused unless the clergy were prepared to recognize the king as the sole protector and supreme head of the church and clergy in england to such a novel proposal convocation showed itself decidedly hostile but at last after many consultations had been held warham the aged archbishop of canterbury proposed that they should acknowledge the king as their singular protector only and supreme lord and as far as the law of christ allows even supreme head whoever is silent said the archbishop may be taken to consent and in this way by the silence of the assembly the new formula was passed at the convocation of york bishop tunstall of durham while agreeing to a money payment made a spirited protest against the new title to which protest henry found it necessary to forward a reassuring reply parliament then ratified the pardon for which the clergy had paid so dearly and to set at rest the fears of the laity, a free pardon was issued to all those who had been involved in the guilt of the papal legate. Clement Seventh issued a brief in January 1531, forbidding Henry to marry again, and warning the universities and the law courts against giving a decision in a case that had been reserved for the decision of the Holy See. When the case was opened at the Rota, in the same month, an excusator appeared to, to plead, But as he had no formal authority from the king he was not admitted the case however was postponed from time to time in the hope that henry might relent in the meantime at the king's suggestion several deputations waited upon catherine to induce her to recall her appeal to rome annoyed by her obstinacy henry sent her away from court and separated from her her daughter after november fifteen thirty one the king and queen never met again popular feeling in london and throughout england was running high against the divorce and against any breach with the emperor who might close the flemish markets to the english merchants the clergy who were indignant that their representatives should have paid such an immense sum to secure pardon for an offence of which they had not been more guilty than the king himself remonstrated warmly against the taxation that had been levied on their revenues unmindful of the popular commotion henry proceeded to usurp the power of the pope and of the bishops and though he was outwardly stern in the repression of heresy the friends of the lutheran movement in england boasted publicly that the king was on their side when parliament met again january fifteen thirty two the attacks on the clergy were renewed a petition against the bishops drawn up by thomas cromwell at the suggestion of henry was presented in the name of the house of commons to the king in this petition the members were made to complain that the clergy enacted laws and statutes in convocation without consulting the king or the commons that suitors were treated harshly before the ecclesiastical courts that in regard to probates the people were worried by excessive fees and unnecessary delays and that the number of holidays was injurious to trade and agriculture this complaint was forwarded to convocation for a reply the bishops while vindicating the clergy the right to make their own laws and statutes showed themselves not unwilling to accept a compromise but parliament at the instigation of henry refused to accept their proposals the king who was determined to crush the power of the clergy insisted that convocation should abandon its rights to make constitutions or ordinances without royal permission and that the ordinances passed already should be submitted to a mixed commission appointed by the authority of the crown Such proposals, so contrary to the customs of the realm, and so destructive of the independence of the church, could not fail to be extremely disagreeable to the bishops. But in face of the uncompromising attitude of the king, they were forced to give way, and in a document known as the Submission of the Clergy, they sacrificed the legislative rights of convocation, May 1532. They agreed to enact no new canons, constitutions, or ordinances, without the king's consent. That those already passed should be submitted to a committee consisting of clergy and laymen nominated by the king and that the laws adopted by this committee and approved by the king should continue in full force sir thomas More, who had worked hard in defence of the church promptly resigned his office of lord chancellor that he might have a freer hand in the crisis that had arisen in March 1532 another step was taken to over the Roman court, and force the Pope to yield to Henry's demands. An act was passed abolishing the annates or first-fruits, paid to Rome by all bishops on their appointment to vacant sees. If the Pope should refuse to appoint without such payments, it was enacted that the consecration should be carried out by the archbishop of the province, without further recourse to Rome. Such a measure, tending so directly to a schism, met with strong opposition in the house of lords from the bishops abbots and many of the lay lords as it did also in the house of commons in the end it was passed only on the understanding that it should not take effect for a year and that in the meantime if an agreement could be arrived at with the pope the king might by letters patent repeal it henry instructed his ambassador at rome to inform clement the seventh that this legislation against annatz was entirely the work of the Parliament, and that if the Pope wished for its withdrawal, he must show a more conciliatory spirit towards the King and people of England. The Pope, however, refused to yield to such intimidation. When news arrived at Rome, that Henry had sent away Catherine from court, the question of excommunication was considered, but as the excommunication of a King was likely to be fraught with such serious consequences for the English Church, Clement VII hesitated to publish it, in the hope that Henry might see the error of his ways. The trial was delayed from time to time, until at last, in November 1532, the Pope addressed a strong letter to the King, warning him under threat of excommunication to put away Anne Boleyn, and not to attempt to divorce Catherine, or to marry another, until a decision had been given in Rome. By this time the King had given up all hope of securing the approval of Rome, for the step he contemplated even in england the divorce from catherine found much opposition from both clergy and laity sir thomas more and many of the nobles were on the side of catherine as were also bishop fisher of rochester and bishop tunstall of durham even reginald pole the king's own cousin who had been educated at henry's expense and for whom the archbishopric of york had been kept vacant refused the tempting offers that were made to him on condition that he would espouse the cause of separation he preferred instead to leave England, rather than act against his conscience by supporting Catherine's divorce. Fortunately for Henry at this moment, Warham, the aged Bishop of Canterbury, who was a stout defender of the Holy See, passed away, August 1532. The king determined to secure the appointment of an archbishop upon whom he could rely for the accomplishment of his designs, and accordingly Thomas Cramner was selected and presented to Rome. After much hesitation, and merely as a lesser of two evils, his appointment was confirmed. Thomas Cranmer was born in Nottingham and educated in Cambridge. He married early in life, but his wife, having died within a few months, he determined to take holy orders. His suggestion to submit the validity of Henry's marriage to the judgment of the universities, coming as it did at a time when Henry was at his wit's end, showed him to be a man of resource, whose services should be secured by the court. He was appointed accordingly chaplain to Anne father, and was one of those sent on the embassy to meet the Pope and Charles V at Bologna. During his wanderings in Germany he was brought into close relationship with many of the leading reformers, and following their teaching and example, he took to himself a wife in the person of the well-known Lutheran divine, Osiander. Such a step, so highly objectionable to the church authorities, and likely to be displeasing to Henry, who, in spite of his own weakness, insisted on clerical celibacy, was kept a secret, though it is not at all improbable that the secret had reached the ears of the king. At the time when the latter had made up his mind to set Rome at defiance, he knew how important it was for him to sacrifice his own personal predilections for the sake of having a man of Cranmer's pliability as Archbishop of Canterbury and head of the clergy in England. On the 30th March, 1533, Cranmer was consecrated Archbishop and took the usual oath of obedience and loyalty to the Pope. But immediately before the ceremony he registered a formal protest, that he considered the oath a mere form and that he wished to hold himself free to provide for the reformation of the Church in England. Such a step indicates, clearly enough, The character of the first Archbishop of the Reformation in England. End of chapter two, part one.